out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, songwriter, performer. It is Claire Hamill, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, and poetry and all the other groovy stuff started in the early 70s with an album called One House Left Standing and then in the 80s became something of a, I suppose, new age singer with various albums, including um, Love in the Afternoon and before that Voices. So this is the interview. Also, as a special bonus, um, there is a track at the end of the uh, interview that... I play mainly because Claire um, was particularly fond of it and said, look, it'd be lovely to include it. So I thought, what the hell, let's include it. This is a track titled When Our Wars Won. Yes, When Our Wars Won. Um, So that's right at the end. But uh, this is the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was both the early formative years, but also, um, yes, pivotal musical moments. Indeed. Claire, tell us about a, a, pivotal, a pivotal musical moment in your life. Anyway, take notes. There's a lot to digest in this. Well, I think the Voices album, certainly, that, that shaped, uh, put me on another course because it was very um, experimental. Um, I remember being in the studio and thinking, this will never sell. This is. I'd been asked to do it by my ex-husband who um, had a record label. He'd been to New York and he had an instrumental label that he was trying to promote as part of the Beggar's Banquet group of labels, which were essentially a sort of underground indie rock label. Um, And he came across New Age Music while he was over there and came back from New York and said, I want you to make a New Age album because I think we can sell some of the the Coda Records stuff repackaged. She said, but I want you to make an album just using your voice without any words. Right. And I, and I went, you've got to be joking. Because, I mean, I'd spent all my time writing songs. Um, and so I I put together a couple of ideas hinged around uh, the seasons and went into the studio and just layered up lots of vocals with a little tune over the top. And I'll never forget the going in and the first track and the engineer going, I absolutely love this. (laughs) It's amazing. And I went, oh, you're joking, aren't you? There's no words. And he was going, no, it's fantastic. Um, So, yeah, the Voices album really put me on a different course. Yes. That was that was quite something. Not many artists yeah. get that that get that moment in. So Beggar's Banquet, yes, because that was that was always kind of veering towards the world of slightly indie goth rock, wasn't that's it? Right. Lots of bands yeah. who dressed in black with long black yeah. hair and mascara. That's right. So that's quite a contrast, actually. Yeah. So the eighties, I suppose we had we had Liz Fraser and the Cocteau Twins, and then you know which kind of brought out a certain energy. But also Enya was quite. I suppose she started to um, appear and. People started getting quite floaty, and I, I, I sort of realised I was that age where I started sort of being slightly drawn to the world of new age hippiedom, which was all very exciting. So, just going back a bit before that, when you were sort of in your early earlier years, um, how did sort of music sort of creep in or enter into your life? Was there oh, a, a yeah. singer or a, an artist that particularly, um, or a moment that well, changed I, everything? I, I grew up in a a family that sang 
Um, my auntie, my grandmother played piano and sang. She was Irish and she had a beautiful voice. My mother and my aunties and all their husbands sang. Everybody sang in those days because it was a way of entertaining yourselves. And so I grew up listening to people singing all the time. I learned to harmonize when I was a child, listening to my mother harmonize um, with, with my aunties and you know, three-part harmonies in my house. It was just wonderful. Um, there were, I, I suppose um, I was drawn to the guitar. Um, I borrowed a guitar from my headmistress at my primary school, um, and I started writing songs when I was very young, when I was when I was twelve. Right, so that was young. It, yeah. And did you? And did the sort of the sixties counterculture creep into your um, aura? Well, um, I was a bit too young for the 60s. The 70s was really my era. Yes. Um, I was just a schoolgirl in the 60s. Um, but, of course, I was. we were all very influenced by, um, you know, the Beatles and uh, the Beach Boys. And, and I had um, my family repertoire to uh, dive into, which was, you know, Buddy Holly and certainly Ella Fitzgerald, was my was my mother's favorite singer and she later became my favorite singer but i remember my mother um had a, a boyfriend so my dad left and went to live in canada i could have been canadian wouldn't, wouldn't that have been amazing yeah. and so, <laughs> i'm being ironic i think um but but the irony is that he had a Joni mitchell album who of course is canadian yeah. and uh, so i listened to Joni mitchell and but i was already playing guitar by then and, and songwriting but it's just that i suddenly went aha I see who I, well, I didn't really think I was very like her, really. Yes. Um, but, but it meant that everybody could, had a vision for me. The people that later on became my managers had a vision because, because Joni Mitchell was successful and she was fresh and new and people were looking around for another Joni Mitchell. I mean, this is how... There weren't any girls doing anything. They just weren't. I think there was Linda Lewis, Sandy Denny, but Sandy Denny wasn't solo. She was part of a band. Yes. Um, and, oh, who was that other one? Um, Leslie Duncan. Leslie Duncan. Yes, because I guess before that, I suppose in the 60s, we had Grace Slick and Janice Joplin, but um, they were sort of West Coast psychedelic rock, they, really, yeah, weren't they? Yeah, they were, yeah, very much part of a rock um, band. Yes. There were, they, they weren't sort of solo singer-songwriters. The singer-songwriter genre was just actually in its infancy with James Taylor and um, Carole King had just put out Tapestry, I think, when I first came down to London. Yeah. But she'd been, she'd been a songwriter for many years, of course, but yes. not um, as, as, you know, as herself. She'd been songwriting for other people. Yeah, and I think Linda Lewis was probably, I should know, I interviewed her two weeks ago. Oh, did you? <laughs> Seems like a long time. But I think she was in various bands, wasn't she? And was often singing with various people. I know she was one of six children, which was quite extraordinary, I thought. Oh, I'm one and, of seven. And Isn't that you, funny? Yeah, wow. yeah, I am. Yeah. But they all had separate, they all had different fathers. They all had different fathers. Oh, so. oh wow, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
I know, I wait. My father fathered all of us. <laughs> but, um, Elizabeth Fraser's one of six as well. I was just reading her bio, um, you know, her Wikipedia thing because I don't know why. Because um, somebody that I, I sang with last week in London, uh, a guy called Gabriel Moreno, he said, Oh, I'd love to hear that song of yours, The Duchess of Seville. Is, can I listen to it? And I said, Well, it's on YouTube. And just because it had popped into my mind, I thought, oh, I'm going to listen to The Duchess of Seville because I'd sent him to it. Yes. And so I wanted to listen to the to the recording of it. And immediately when that finished, they put on um, Song for a Siren. Right. Uh, and I just went, oh, Elizabeth Fraser, I love her. She's so amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. She's definitely... In my top five. Yes. About it. Well, I think she's got a new project, hasn't she? That's just come out in the last month or so. So she's yeah, she's reappeared, right. which is very exciting. So did you? Because I talked to Linda, and yeah. also Terry did the great, um, not just Terry, uh, Terry. Yes, it was Terry Reed. Um, oh, wow, they yeah. they were part of that kind of scene that was just coming from the sixties to the seventies, and I think we're both like they're going to be huge, especially Terry. And there was that famous Glastonbury film, isn't there, where I think 71 and and David Bowie had played there. They'd all taken magic mushrooms and got very excitable. And uh, David played at three in the morning on Sunday. And and we, I mean, that was all part of that kind of counter counterculture stuff. Were you at all part of that kind of slightly? Oh well, I was a schoolgirl when I came into the music business, so I'd been very protected. I went to a convent school. I didn't smoke. I wasn't aware of drugs before I came into the music business um so no I don't think I was very counterculture I, I think I was a goody two-shoes really that wanted to um make the world a better place as the Beatles had said all you need is love and I was very influenced by that message as a child so I wanted to do music as a way of healing what I saw you know healing healing the world but but at the same time of course um psychedelic drugs were a route to healing and people believed in in them and they believed that the world was going to become a much much better place yes. as a result of all of all of the psychedelic uh, as you say counterculture that was going on but it kind of it sort of passed me by but not um the cannabis smoking uh, that that uh, crept into my life and unfortunately I became very heavily addicted to cannabis and and it did have an impact on me which um, you know has always been played down uh, by a society that uh, is attracted to the use of drugs um, and I you know I, I look back on my life and think well it really took me down a road I shouldn't probably have gone down because um, it took away a lot of my ambition and my creativity um although i did make four albums before i was 21 so it wasn't all rubbish was it really no it, you, yeah. you do you so how did i mean this was quite extraordinary your first album is um it's on island records you know yeah. chris blackwell was who's just brought a book out in I know. I know. <laughs> did um did he was he the did he find not discover you because obviously you were already there but was he the person who signed you to island yeah, I mean, he pretty much discovered me. I wasn't really very much there. Um, I'd done just some local gigs in Teesside, where I'm from, at my manager's club, uh, the Kirk Clemington Country Club. 
which um, they were putting on all sorts of bands. Uh, Terry Reid played there, and I met Terry Reid there. And it was Terry Reid's drummer, Alan White, who sadly just recently yes. died, who um, brought me brought his manager up from London to see me and Tony Dimitriadis who went on to manage um, Tom Petty and uh, um, Stevie Nicks and also Neil Young for a time. He lives in America now. So he, um, he and John McCoy discovered me and brought me to London and they took me first to WEA and uh, the chap there called Martin, somebody or other, I can't remember his name now. Um, he said, no, you're too young, go away, come back in a couple of years. But, I, but then we had a meeting scheduled with Chris Blackwell and I begged him to sign me. <laughs> oh, please, Mr Blackwell, please, Mr Blackwell, will you sign me, please? And then he's going, I don't want it, you're too young, the music business is awful. It's really, it's a really terrible business for a young, innocent girl. Like he's, oh, please, Mr Blackwell, please. And then he said, Oh, all right then. And then I went, <laughs> quick as a flash, I said, well, if I'm successful, can I have shares in Ireland Records? And at which point my manager grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and sort of pirouetted me down the stairs. We had a meeting on the roof at Basing Street in there. Yes. Oh, dear Chris Blackwell. I fell madly in love with him. He was so gorgeous. He was like Robert Redford. Yes, he did. He, yeah. I did see the photograph of the, the new cover to the book, and um, he's dashing, isn't he? Oh, he's handsome as. Handsome. <laughs> what a gentleman. Yeah. I used to call him the guru because he'd often go away back to Jamaica, and, and then he'd come back, and then the whole of Island Records were, oh, Chris is back, and everybody would be on their toes, everybody were really nervous, and then this handsome tanned guy would just waft in with his flip-flops on which was he always wore flip-flops so I'll never forget that and his lovely tanned feet yes. and you know and then he'd be asking all these questions oh he was charismatic I know the UK wasn't so tanned and healthy in the early 70s no. was it let's face it we were all no bit... it wasn't I never got a tan until I left the country I was white for the whole of my childhood we were all yeah. scrabbling around looking yeah. for the can opener for the tin of beans. But look, so your first album has the most amazing personnel on it, doesn't doesn't it? I mean, you know, kind of yeah. A-list. So did you had you written the, the songs, apart from the one that you covered, the Joni Mitchell one, were these all written before you went into the studio or were you working with other people on this? Oh, no. Well, I did work with my boyfriend, Mike Coles. He provided me with some lyrics and I turned them into songs. And, I mean, it's thanks to Mike that I got my record contract because the songs I were writing were very whim whimsical you know winsome love songs I mean some of them are beautiful like consummation is really pretty and I wrote baseball blues for him um and most of the songs are my songs but I think the outstanding songs are probably the ones that I wrote with Mike yes um, because he was older you see so he and, and not only was he older but he's supremely talented fantastic poet and I owe him a great debt, definitely. Yes. So on this album, you know, it's it is kind of everybody really, well not everyone, but there was, you know, from John Martin to Terry Reed, you know, to Paul Buckmaster as well. I yeah, mean, and, yeah. and David Lindy. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Did were these people that people, oh yes, I know a good guitarist, you should bring him in, or oh, another person. I mean, was it quite intimidating in the studio having kind of such a 
a sort of wealth. I was so innocent and so blown away. And, you know, I, 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 I'll never forget hearing my voice back through the speakers for the first time. That was just wonderful. But um, I was kind of living in a dream, really. So I wasn't so much intimidated as just wow you know I was I was like a wondrous child like you know a, a child in Charlie's chocolate factory mm. um, and Chris was bringing in most of these wonderful people and Tony Dimitriades and John McCoy had a hand in getting the Alex Welsh trad band and Terry Reid was managed by Tony so um, uh, but the guys from Free, Rabbit Bundrick and Tetsu Yamauchi um, from Free, um, they they uh, they played on the album. So that was as a result of you know Chris's involvement. Had you gone out on the road by then, or were you going to do the album and then tour? Um, I was going to do the album and then tour. Yeah, I think I played. I played a gig with Terry at Commonwealth Institute that summer that I was recording. And I think I did one at the Roundhouse, which was a Jeff Dexter experience. I'll never forget because, <laughs> because this is funny. shows you how young I was. Um, I, I went back to my dressing room after I'd performed and someone had stolen my Clearasil. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> that shows you how young that was. That was <laughs> this spotty, little spotty. Oh, somebody stole my Clearasil from the... Oh, that was all that was in the in the um, dressing room. Oh, yeah. No, I, w I was just really wet behind the ears. And, but, I mean, if you if you look at my early performance on the Old Grey Whistle Test, where we can't see my first performance, you can only see my second one, which happened a year later, yes. um, when I was 18. You can see that I still was very, very innocent and silly. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was very young. Yes. And was there a lot of pressure? Because there isn't much time, isn't there, in the music industry to suddenly say, right, that's great, next album. You know, was there quite a lot of, um, right, you've, you've, you know, you've, you've got a bit of traction here, let's get the second album out. And that's, I mean, you know, I'd be, I was, you know, obsessed with David Bowie and still am a little bit. But, you know, I mean, in the 70s, he released one album a year, plus, yeah. you know, toured a lot, produced other people's, acted in a few films. And you think, God, I don't know how you got time. But, you know, he managed to do it. But he'd also spent most of the 60s kind of trying and failing, kind of not miserably, but not really going anywhere quick. But you you were quite young to suddenly get right, that's great, next album next year. I mean, what was that process like to um, sort of follow up the debut um, album? It it was it was yes it was it was it was just one of those things I think that um, I fell in love when I was seventeen with an American that I wrote my most successful song for which is a song called You Take My Breath Away but I didn't write that when I was seventeen I wrote it when I was nineteen um, but I recorded it when I was nineteen I'm not quite sure but well, yeah nineteen nineteen um, so it was. It was a case of, we've got some traction here. She's been on the Old Grow Whistle Test. She's on tour in America. People seem to like her, although I wasn't making any impact on the charts at all because the charts were very much um, dominated by glam rock 
um, sweet and, and people of that ilk. Mm. Um, Top of the Pops was the charts. And I was what you the Americans call album-orientated rock. Um, you know, some more thoughtful music that wouldn't necessarily be played um, on Radio 1 in the daytime while people were, you know, on a building site. They wanted something much more upbeat. And whereas some of the songs on my on that first album are upbeat, but um, I don't think that my vocal style was very pop. It, mm. You know, it was always, it, it's quite... It's quite folky and it, it's got a sort of, I don't know, slightly classical, slightly overacted, you know. I, I was a bit precocious, you can imagine. Um, I'd had to come out of the Northeast from an extremely poor background and push myself into the limelight. Um, and it was like, blimey, what's happened to me, you know? <laughs> Uh, are the eldest of seven abandoned children, you know, with 50p a week pocket money, suddenly with three grand in the bank. It was it was an extraordinary tale, really. Um, but to make an impression on the music business being so young, um, I think that was asking a lot, really. Yes. Um, but and never did... mind. You know, wow, I, mean, I mean, again, on the second album, you have, you know, Alan White is is the drummer at this stage as well. So, mm. you know, it's it's and, you know, sadly, he passed away. I mean, what was your sort of memories of, of those kind of do you have? Can you still remember those kind of early sessions, which were only 15 well, years Alan ago? Well, Alan and I were flatmates. Um, he and his girlfriend and I and Tony Dimitriadi started living together in Tony's flat in Marble Arch. I mean, I, I slept in the box room. Tony had a bedroom and they had a bedroom downstairs. So I was just their little mascot, but I was madly in love with Alan, of course. You know, he was so talented and so handsome. And oh my God, when he played the drums, he played like, he I don't know, he played like he was Jesus or something. You know, <laughs> he was channeling something amazing. And not only that, he was just the most wonderful, wonderful man. Anybody that knew Alan knew that he had a heart of gold and I adored him. And he was, he was very sweet to me. He, 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 he loved me, definitely. Um, but I was so young and there was nothing ever sexual between us, but he loved me because I was Northern and I was cheeky and I was fun. And, you know, I was their little mascot, Alan and Rory. I, followed them around, you know, in their various flats. They took me with them because Rory hated cooking and I wanted to learn to cook. And, you know, <laughs> they, I just went everywhere with them, really. And so Fantastic. Alan, it was natural that Alan would play on October. Yes. Um, but of course, I'm so glad that that um, that he did because he gave such a wonderful performance and uh, I've got that wonderful memory of him. Yes. I've got I've got tons of memories. We all went to Jamaica together. We went to Beachy Head in his Rolls Royce. You know, we um we, we went to Brands Hatch in his Panther, and then I started crying in the back seat over something, and then he crashed crashed this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yes. Oh, yeah, I mean, he's such a lovely man. Yes, so and I'm know. still friends with Rory. Rory's become you know like a dear dear friend all my life really yeah. um I, even though they broke up um you know they were together seven years and she went back to live in america she hated she hated the english weather basically she was a california girl 
I wrote a song for her, Rory. She's a California dreamer and she wears her clothes so fine. Likes clean white linen, but never knows the time. She likes it in style. She's one of that kind. And the weird thing about that song is that I adore Rory. She's seven years older than me. She was like the big sister that I looked up to. And I was lonely in the music business. I come from a big family and, you know, and then I'm off touring on my own with my with my guitar and my little Bieber suitcase with my dress in it and going around, staying in hotels, playing in all the universities up and down the country. And, you know, all the traveling salesmen looking at me in the hotel bar thinking, what is that girl doing here? You know, where, you know, how old is she? Why is she on her own? It, it was a very, very weird existence because I didn't have, I mean, I wasn't making enough money to take a manager on tour with me or any entourage. Right. Enough money to for me to get paid and pay for my hotel, pay for my train ticket, and get a little bit of money left over, you know. So. So what was the what was the sort of slightly average member of the audience like? Because because I'm sort of you know thinking back to the seventies. I I have a brother who was seven years older than me, and he during that time, I suppose he was starting to get you know into the music scene but he went down that prog rock route of you know yes and genesis and wishbone ash and james harvest and you know those sort of bands um with the okay you know he, he didn't yeah and i just wondered did you get a sort of a studious a student type of audience or did you get sort of sensitive you know young women or did you get sort of Lots of men who just fell in love with you. What was the? What I was got your... lots of men who just fell in love with me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got my I've got my girl fans, but to to a certain degree, I do appear. My audience is mainly male, and that that's you know that's how we are. That's why you know there are so many more successful men than. It's, it's, uh, let me tell you this funny story. Um, years ago, I I knew this black guy. He was a singer a local singer in, in my town where I live now in Hastings. I've forgotten his name, it's gone out of my mind. But he said, well, when I gig, he said, he said, it's fantastic because all the women are down the front cheering me on and all their blokes are at the bar cheering me on because the women are cheering me on and they can all be at the bar ignoring me but having a lovely time drinking. So he said, but you as a woman, you're never going to get that. You're going to have you know some men in the audience but if any women come to the it's just what you sing they're going to be digging their husbands or boyfriends in the ribs saying stop looking at her what stop looking stop looking at her you know and so it it it, it is a funny thing i mean women singers now are so popular mm. it, but it, it wasn't like that in the days when i you know when i was singing there were there were they were quite rare, unless you were in a band like Maggie Bell or, you know, um, Sandy Denny. The girl singers were were fairly rare. Yes, um, they were. Ma- like... Maybe not on the on the sort of working men's club circuit, where you would have people singing more pop stuff. But my audiences tended to be university students. Yeah. Um, yeah. at, at about my age. There was those folk bands like Renaissance and Curved Air in the Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then, well, but the, but, she was really popular, wasn't she? I mean, Sonia Christina was very sexy in those days. So she was really, really popular. 
Yes, and that that sort of and the and you know now we see all those little clips on the old grey whistle test with very sort of everyone had beards, didn't they? Beards, well, not all the women, obviously the men did. Long yeah. hair, they weren't the most fashionable chaps, were they? Really, with whispering boys. Well, everybody had to grow their hair, didn't they? Because that was that was your rebelliousness coming out. I mean, I remember the changes um, in those days uh, about you know women getting. Um, uh, getting more equal rights, um, being allowed into golf clubs, being able to get mortgages, being, you know, all, all the things that, that women take for granted now were very, very much fought for yes. in the 1970s. And, I mean, I remember my, my brothers growing their hair and being sent home from school. Um, it was a thing that men did in order to rebel against the... Um, the, the rule, not, not the necessarily the root, well, it's to separate themselves from their dear old dad <coughs> because their fathers had copied, their own fathers had copied their fathers. And it was a time when in the 60s and 70s when people stopped copying the people that had gone before. Yes. Um, in many ways, you know. It was it was a sign that you're an individual. And um, yes, and also, though, I mean, my dad wasn't in the war but he he did national service so there was still the thing about having short back and sides and yeah. a da and all that kind of stuff that one heard about so look on your third album this was on a new label did did ireland just sign you for those first two albums and then say no we're well not. what actually happened was um ireland i hadn't sold enough records and so Ireland wanted me to make some singles. That's what, that's what, um, no, hang on a minute. I'm getting confused, aren't I? Because I think that's what happened at Conk. Now, what happened was um, my manager wanted to, Tony Dimitriades wanted to manage Ray Davies. He got close with Ray and Ray Davies wanted his own label. So Tony used me as the bait. But he didn't end up ma managing Ray in the end. But I was signed away from Ireland uh, in, into Conk. And, and Tony said, look, you've got to sign with them because um, Ireland don't want to make another album with you, but they want your publishing. Um, so I signed away my publishing in order to go with that different label. But, you know, um, I'm a trusting wee thing, always have been. Um, and, of course, Ray Davies is wonderful. He's the kinks. Yes, I was enchanted to be around him. He was—he's an amazing guy, um, and it was a thrill to work with him. But I did. But I was very happy at Ireland, and I loved Chris Blackwell. You know, I loved all the people at Ireland. I get very attached to people. I'm sentimental, and you know, it was—it was a shame. But yes. I kind of—I—I I can understand why I'd started to be a bit irresponsible and unreliable due to the, the pot I was smoking and the coke I was snorting, although I didn't really snort a lot of coke because I never bought it. Mm, so, nice uh, choice. I, I refused to buy it. I wouldn't <laughs> mind snorting anybody else's, but I refused to buy it. So it was too expensive for me. Yeah. And so I didn't ever become a coke head, but I did become a pot head. You know, right about that. the mid 70s oh, yeah the mid 70s was yeah, that, was, was a period wasn't it really um yeah. which is always kind of did you i mean as as the decade was trucking on 
did it feel difficult to keep the momentum going? Because I think one thing I've noticed with a lot of bands and artists is mostly, you know, people have a five-year narrative. I mean, this is a lot to do with the combined love of the 80s but and the independent world. But it was kind of, you know, people have that 12-month honeymoon period of developing their sound or the band. They get that single, you know, they get a play on something like the John Peel show. Then they get the first, you know, like John Peel session, which was always a really big deal. Then the first album, getting the transit van, go around the UK. Second album can be a bit tricky. Third album, you know, by then everyone's getting a bit exhausted. And, and so five years is often a period. And also the next wave of, you know, the 16, 18 year olds are coming along and they they kind of want their own sound. So I just wondered how you were beginning to navigate the kind of the 70s period. Well, when punk happened, which was in 1976, um, that was the beginning of the end of that phase of my life, really. Uh, it was, I was just hugely unpopular because I, I wrote pretty songs. I wanted to sound beautiful. My aim was beauty beauty you know the best the nicest the you know I wanted to to be ecstatic you know uh, uh, well anyway I, I just wanted the, the best sounding most lovely thing I wanted to touch people I wanted them to cry I wanted them to feel something but the problem was that socially people were feeling something they were feeling pissed off mm. you know the 70s the punk reflected what was happening in our country? I mean, my style of music and to a certain extent, the the, the um, stadium bands that were around, uh, you know, like Yes and Genesis and ELO and, and people like that, um, they were, what, everybody had to push off to America because America didn't really get the punk thing like we did. Um, but we, you know, that was a, a result of, of the terrible, a financial situation our country was in at the time and and so I did change my music slightly it became more angry because I, I needed to reflect what was going on in my world because I'm a songwriter I want to write about the world I want to write about experiences um, and so but because I had belonged to another era even though I was only 21 when punk happened um, I belonged to a different era, and so I couldn't get any work. I was basically washed up. But but my man, Tony Dimitriades, went to America. He just discovered Tom Petty, and he said to me, look, if you need any help, go and see a man called John Sherry. So I went to see John Sherry, and he managed Wishbone Ash. So what then happened was I started working with Wishbone Ash. Um, and that provided um, a little stopgap before I got it. I mean, John Sherry tried to get me my own record deals, but it wasn't happening. I, I, I just, I just wasn't, just wasn't biting. Even though one of my songs, I'm sure, was the inspiration for every breath you take. Because yes. um, I, I had a song that every every line rhymed, every line, and. If you remember with every breath you take, that's exactly what happened in that song. Well, my manager was um, uh, close with, um, oh, what's his name? Cope, not Stuart Copeland, 
Miles Copeland. The one that managed for Miles Copeland. Miles Copeland. I met Miles Copeland. He wanted to put me in one of my bands. So I knew he had my tapes and everything. So I'm I'm sure I've always thought that 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 every breath you take was was um was stolen from me by <laughs> um what's his name? Yes, you know, that, that, that terrible northerner who was so successful. Anyway, but that's by the by. I'm just an old gossip, as you can as you can see. And well, I'm a... I'm not in the least bit bitter. I have I have no bitterness in me. I Oops. am happy. I am glad I've had this life I've had. I've, I've had a wonderful life. Yes. So was that kind of a few years at the late seventies? Was that a period which was slightly a dark time for you before the you know from that abracadabra album and then wishbone ash was there a period where you were just in a bit of a, a haze of smoke yeah I, yeah yeah I, I i lived in a squat in north london mind you lots of people did uh, there was a party in my squat and um and the tourists were there um, uh, oh, Dave yes. Stewart, Annie Lennox, and because their early bass player was somebody that was a friend of the guitarist I was working in because I had a band called Transporter at the time, and uh, and so he they were friends, and we had this party in the squat, and um, somebody said, "Oh, this is Annie, and this is Dave." They were sitting on the stairs at the time in the squat. I said, "Oh, nice to meet you. Oh, what's your name, Mark?" Uh, and they, actually, they didn't ask my name. And I said, oh, oh, who invited you to this party? And they went, oh, Claire Hamill. And I just went, oh, I see, because I hadn't <laughs> met them before. But um, I, I'd i had, by then, I'd had this sort of notoriety, whereas they were just starting out in the world. But anyway, Annie Lennox, she's a great singer, isn't she? She's, yes, absolutely. Usually <laughs> successful. <laughs> yes, quite. Quite a yeah. So that was a particularly, I mean, wow, because mostly people do it the other way around. But you went, you know, the early 70s into squat band, which is Yeah, oh God, I know. It was terrible. It was yeah. a real you're right, it was a dark time. Because I I, you know, I'd expected so much of myself. And to have to to have been plucked from obscurity and poverty and then sent round the world, staying in all the best hotels and flying first class to LA and being on TV and, and all of that sort of, um, you know, attention. And then to have to live in a squat age 21, nobody wanted to know anything about you. Um, but that it, that's when I, I started working with Wishbone Ash and then they, and after that, I started to get a bit further on my on, you know. I mean, John mm. Sherry did help me. He found me somewhere to live, so I didn't have to live in a squat anymore. In fact, I moved into a very nice house in Barnes, which was great. Nice. Well, that, that's yeah. good. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, Wishbone Ash, I still, I still love the album Argus. Is it Argus? Which has got... Um, one of those Blow, ones. Blowing Free and Persephone, I think. Yes, and you also worked with Steve Howe as well on one of his solo albums, didn't you? I did, yes, I did. Oh, Steve's lovely. Yes, and I think he's he's got a new album or another album coming out this year, actually. 
later on. He's still doing his, his business. So then as the 80s, tricky period, you know, in, in a way, 79, Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher gets in, we have the Falkland War, we have the Miner mm. Strike, we have Green and Common. Things aren't looking great, are they? A lot of the bands that I, you know, starting at that point were signing on the dole and claiming Job Seekers Allowance and Enterprise Allowance schemes, you know, and thinking there's no future, quite mm. literally. So that's what I think why the 80s does have a lot of kind of quite interesting music because there was not, nothing else to do. So how did you navigate? You were in the Wish, you know, Wishbone Ash, which is obviously a good one and doing sort of other bits and pieces. So how did the 80s pan out until your next kind of or that or the all sort of reinventing yourself? Well, um, what actually happened was I met the boss of Vegas Banquet, Nick Austin, um, at a club, um, Heaven Under the Arches. Um, and Billy Idol was playing in the Merton Parkers and he was there. And I'd been invited along with a friend of mine um, who's, uh, I just split up with my boyfriend and I was living in the house in, in Barnes and working with Wishbone Ash. And, um, and my friend had invited me to this club. Um, and then one of the chaps behind the bar said, oh, this chap works for Beggar's Banquet. And, Gary Newman had a number one at, mm. at that time. It was he was number one that very week in the charts, and so um, I said to I said to Nick, "Oh, Beggs Banquet. Oh, you've got a number one at the moment. That guy, Gary Newman, he's interesting." And then Nick said, "Oh yes, yeah, it is. And and what do you do?" I said, "Well, yeah, I'm a songwriter. I've made four albums for Island Records and and two for Ray Davies' Conk label. And I'm working with Wishbone Ash." And and he he was quite impressed, and I was quite impressed. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, he said, "Oh, you know, where do you live?" I said, "Oh, I live in Barnes." And I said, and "He said, I said, where do you live?" And he said, "Chiswick." I said, "Oh, great! You can give me a lift home." <laughs> <laughs> so he gave me a lift home to this house in Barnes, and and as he pulled up, he kind of looked at the house and he looked at me, and I think he thought, "Hmm, there's something interesting about this girl." So, um, so Nick and I hit it off and, um, and then he became, uh, a great support and wanted then to, you know, help me release some records. Yes. In fact, so he re-released my first, first two albums, but we couldn't get the, we couldn't get the conk tapes back. That was the thing. We couldn't get them back. Blimey, that's so strange. Yeah. So that world just is slightly confusing. It must be even more confusing when you're even further in that world. The mm. the world of publishing and ownership of music and stuff like that. Who owns what? Oh well, I mean, they owned they owned the rights to the records for a certain length of time, but I mean the it was the island publishing deal which which was the a heaviest one, which I signed in 1973. I think in America, I'd be entitled to get all my copyright, all my publishing back by now, but I only have um, a, a half of You Take My Breath Away, which is my most successful song, um, and Universal and the rest of that. But, um, you know, if I, if I had a heavyweight lawyer as a boyfriend, he might go to court and help me do that, but I don't. Yes, it's... it's um, no, 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 no it's, it's fine, you know. I mean, I think the thing is that you can't let all of that get you down, you know, because, gosh, I mean, I'm still making music. I'm still making 
I, I still have ideas. I'm still writing really great songs. And the songs of, of my youth are there still. I mean, somebody bought October the other day, a friend of mine bought October, and he says, God, Claire, I'm loving it. It sounds so good. And that makes me so happy to know that people are still discovering me. Yes, absolutely. So as we as we sort of embrace the new age kind of philosophies of life, and there was a mm. lot of them in the 80s, you you know, because I was a few sort of singers I, I enjoyed during that period, you know, who was kind of new age, and they always sort of sung about the equinox and the solstices and the, and the four seasons, as in, you know, spring. Your, your sort of, the second album you did in, in for that coda, the, the one called Voices, you broke it into the, you know, spring, summer, autumn, winter. Did you... Um, you know what was it? What was it like as a, a creative artist, sort of, sort of thinking? Were you thinking quite differently at this stage about how to put an album, kind of a, a concept album, together? I was, I was given the task, and I did it. I mean, it, it, it's it's always what I've done. If you know, when Michael Coles gave me those that those poems, I turned them into songs. When when I, I was asked later by Nick to take some classical pieces and turn them into songs. I'm somebody that has the ability to write music to lyrics and write lyrics to music. And um, that that's just what I can do. So when he said to me, I want you to write an album of music, just using your voice. I don't want any lyric. Well, there are some lyrics, but they're German, you know, and mm. French and they're repeated. So it's not really, I mean, they're not lyrics, lyrics. Um, and, and so, yeah, it was just a wonderful concept that I, I, I ran with it. I, and um yeah, I, I think I, I really enjoyed making. It took six weeks to make. The albums that I'd worked on before took months to make. Right. So to make an album in six weeks in which I had total control for the very first time. I mean, I'd always worked with engineers and producers um, and other people, you know, musicians, putting, oh, I think we should do it this way. I think we should do it that way. Uh, um, if you, you know, I think I'll do this riff here. I'll do that there. Um, it was, it was really, really refreshing to have nobody else to confer with. Yes, um, absolutely. It, yeah. So was the follow-up album, Love in the Afternoon, which features the, the classic track Glastonbury, was that, were you kind of on a creative role at this stage after the sort of the late 70s and then sort of fumbling around a bit and then thinking, right, I've, I've, I've kind of feel reborn-ish. I did feel reborn. I'd moved to the country. Um, I was a young mother. I loved where where we lived. Um, it, it, it was a, a wonderful place and um it was a different phase in my life i i'd written a song with um some years before with robert fripp who'd been an ex-boyfriend of mine and we'd written a song called love in the afternoon um and it just seemed like a a, a good addition to that collection i wanted to go back into songwriting even though voices had made mm. such an impact um they they even mentioned it on points of view you know that tv because it was taken up by 
the Doomsday Book program Michael Wood was hosting and they played all my music on it and a producer came to see me and he said, look, when this program goes out, you will, you know, get an awful lot of interest. And I remember going into the post office um, in my village and the woman behind the counter said, are you Claire Hamill? And I went, yes. She said, well, they mentioned you on Points of View last night and Robinson mentioned you. And I went, you're joking. And she went, no, it's to do with that programme that you wrote the music for. They've, been, they've had so many letters. Everybody's been writing in saying, what is that music? So um, yes. I realised then that it had made an impact. Yes. And then, of course, Enya ran with it. She she came out later and did something, and um, and uh, and and yeah, it 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 was. But I wanted to reintroduce songs. So, Love in the Afternoon was um, an album of uh, you know choral pieces and also songs. Yes. Um, so, Glastonbury, how did that song, because that's the, the one that I have a particular fondness, how did that sort of manifest itself? Do you know what? Um, I think it's to do with the whole pastoral theme that was going on in my life. It was to do with moving to the country. Um, and I, I, I found being in the countryside so inspiring um, that, you know, uh, look, the song Trees as well, I mean, that that was really inspired by living in, in the house I was living in. So Glastonbury, yeah, I mean, uh, there are sorts of images in, in Glastonbury. Um, Glastonbury, hard to measure, giving up this life of pleasure. Well, yeah, I mean, I was a young mother. It was tough, um, but it was a deepening experience. And, um, and I think, I don't, you know, I suppose Glastonbury's got flavours, hasn't it? And First Night in New York has got, had, had those flavours as well. Yes. Um, I think I was becoming a more imaged, conscious songwriter. Um, so, and nuanced images. So I was trying, I was trying to get the listener to create images and somebody said to me that you know one of the things I love about your music is that you I, I find images when I listen to your music I find all these images in my mind you know it's not like I'm listening to a love song where I, you know it's boy meets girl it, it, it you know that sort of time in my life I think I think it was becoming more image-led in a, in a sort of way. Yes, know. well, I think, you know, I suppose the in, environment does kind of impact a lot on sort of, you know, people, you know, when I listen to the work of, say, Joy Division from Manchester, you know, it does feel so bleak and the lyrics mm. are bleak and the sound, but then when you listen to some from the Eagles or one of those, you know, West Coast bands in the mm. 70s, when you drive around, you know, New Mexico, Arizona, and you, you're listening to some of those tracks. You think, oh God, yeah, of course you could yeah. have written this on a on a November afternoon in Manchester, could you? No, that's <laughs> so true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, you need the sort of the the. I the love the Eagles. Oh, they're wonderful, aren't they? They are Brilliant. amazing. So, because yeah. because after the kind of success of you know, love in the afternoon. You know, there's quite a break before your your next release, isn't there? Sort of on on sort of you know, the next one is summer, which is almost nine years later. 
I know that's because my marriage broke up. Um, and so, um, you know, it was a very difficult time in my life. Um, uh, I did make some recordings that never saw the light of day, mm. and I always have. Um, and that because there was a 10 year gap between um, Summer and The Lost and the Lovers. Um, when I was, I made a, a, a lot of recordings during that time, but you know, I, I tend to get very distracted by the men in my life, you know, and the people in my life. And I tend, I tend to, you know, my career and my music have just been a part of me constantly, mm. but people, um, I feel, I, fe I felt that they've needed me and I've given I've given, I've tried to give them what they needed because I felt that that was more useful, you know, than than writing music. But you know, now I look back, I think perhaps I shouldn't have. Well, of course, I look back on my life, think, well, well, you shouldn't have done that, should you? You daft sod. That was a silly decision. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm I'm at a stage in my life where I'm I'm extremely happy. So I can't really, um, you know, your life is such a wonderful journey, and it's given me a great deal of riches and depth that I control for my music. So I'm not regretful of of it. But but you're right. There have been times when I wasn't. Um, releasing anything and that was purely financial um after my marriage broke up I didn't have any money I lived you know very humbly I lived with a guy that again was wanted to make music and we were doing that sort of dance thing he was a huge Joy Division fan absolutely that is his band um I didn't really know Joy Division at all um but um but yeah I mean Yes, there was a there was a gap. There was, yes. a, there was a huge gap. It's and that tricky. was probably financial more than anything else. God, it's tricky, yeah. isn't it? We, to, to navigate life is so so amazing, isn't it? And did you during that time feel that did music just feel like something that was just part of the past and may never come back again? Did oh, you... absolutely not. No. Because the guy I was living with, Andrew Warren, that I made summer with, he was so keen to make music. I mean, he really wanted to make a make his mark. So we were making recordings all the time. But Andrew's the sort of person that is a bit perfectionist. And so whereas I'm somebody that goes, right, we're going to the studio, we're going to spend that much amount of money and we're going to make that product and then we're going to release it. You know, he could never let things go. He always wanted to rework things, improve it, um, you know. And so uh, I didn't release anything. All, uh, we, we, we released one album the whole time we were together and that um, was... I felt very unproductive, but then eventually we broke up and I brought out um, uh, The Lost and the Lovers. Yes. Um, after did, we broke up. Did that feel like quite a cathartic experience, sort of getting in the studio to do to do that particular album? Yeah. Um, well, he recorded most of it. In fact, he recorded all of it, but we didn't release it at the time we were together. I think we released it when we'd broken up. Right. Um I think we only ever released together um, summer. 
Yes. I, I might be I might be wrong on that. I know that I released I released the loss and the lovers and then immediately went back into the nurse. So we can't no, we were still together when that came out. But it was the only album that I'd done with him in the time we were together. We'd done summer together. It was a joint album. Yes. But the but the loss and the lovers were were my songs that he produced and and arranged and played on. Um and then I'm after I remember we released that album and I immediately went back into the studio because I'd been approached by this guy who said, I've, I've got cancer, I'm dying. Please, will you write some music to my poetry and I will pay for the recording and I will pay for the release. So I didn't even get a chance to promote The Lost and the Lovers. I went back into the studio and I, and I wrote... Um, uh, the music for When A War's Won, um, which actually, I can't believe how pre prescient it is at the moment. It's the most amazing song about war you're ever going to hear. Um, and I entreat you to listen to it on Spotify um, and not be blown away by it. I did do a version of it with Fragile, but I, I think my version is a better version, the original version. Yes. Um, it's called When A Was One, and you would not believe the depth of the lyrics. Not my lyrics, they're, they're uh, Brian Brian's lyrics. But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. And so I went, I went in, and we and released an, an EP. And I think Andrew and I broke up shortly after that. Um, and and, so, and, yeah. and and on Archways, this. Your label is that somebody else's, by the way? No, Archway's my my publishing company, and that was set up by John Sherry when I was with Wishbone Ash, and that's always held my later copyrights. Right. So, um, so yeah, Archway's my company. That's that's quite nice, kind of keeping it sort of much more self sufficient. So does that mean the last uh, few albums, like The Meeting of the Waters, When Daylight Arrives, and Over Dark? apples mm. was that have they been a more enjoyable kind of experience having your own sort of label but also having moved away from various kind of relationships um I think that um I wouldn't say that they've been more enjoyable I think they've just been as enjoyable uh they've been an important part of my life in that um, I was able to um, let my creativity out yet again on another album. And, and my small band of fans seemed very grateful for that. I mean, they don't, I haven't, I've sold hardly any at all. I'm still a very unrecognised artist, uh, which is why I'm so grateful for this interview, David. <laughs> um, and, um, but... Yeah, I mean, I've just kept going. I've just, I've just got, I've got music in my bones somehow, and I just keep writing songs. And some of them are really good, and some of them are averagely good, and some of them blow people away, you know. Um, but um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I haven't got anybody in my life. Andrew and and, and I sort of came back together and broke up again a number of times after we finally broke up but um but I I still 
No, I, 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 I love, I love all of them. They're, they're all a part of me, and they're all a part of my, my life and times and my document of my life. You know, so. Yes, yeah. I mean, I know it seems like a long time ago, but actually, you just said you, at the beginning, you had, you've recently had COVID. How did you cope with the last? you know, a couple of years or the beginning of this decade when lockdown happened, because you'd released the album over Dark Apples, and then recently A Pocket Full of Love Songs. Was that an album that you wrote you know, yes, over, over the was. last couple of years? Yes, it was. I wrote it in lockdown. I started recording it last year. Right. So I wrote it in 2020, and I recorded it in 2021. Yes. And what was the, as an artist who, you know, like enjoys performing, how did you sort of navigate, you know, that period kind of emotionally and spiritually? Well, it was a terrible time because my mother died at uh, the beginning of, of COVID. She died on March the 11th and we went into lockdown on the 23rd. So I couldn't even go to her funeral. And two of my brothers were there. Ten people were allowed. They put her body in the ground. They said the Lord's Prayer and a and a and a, a, a poem. I, in fact, I wrote a little song for my mother um, that my niece read out at her grave. Ten minute ceremony into the ground she went, and that was it. And that woman had seven children and brought us all up, and none of us went to prison. You know, we all did well for ourselves. We all, you know, passed 11 pluses and stuff. And, you know, she should have had a eulogy to the high heavens, and she got absolutely nothing. It was it was a tragic time. I went down to the sea and I put some flowers in the sea. And my youngest daughter, who lives in Amsterdam, um, we did a sort of video chat and, and she was there with me. And I remember I got absolutely dressed up to the nines, which I wouldn't have done it if I'd been at a funeral. I yes. put on a fancy coat and I, you know, put makeup on and I just thought, I love you, mum. Um, I honor you and it was it was it was a terrible time I got I started drinking a lot I, I was drinking a lot of red wine and and it's still a very hard habit to break now but I'm you know I've only had one glass tonight <laughs> <laughs> well yes absolutely these things are tricky when did you manage to sort of cut the smoke in did you manage to sort of curtail oh that? yes years ago yeah I mean years ago I mean it's really funny because when people you know if you go to the doctors and they say well have you ever smoked and I say yes I smoked between the ages of 18 and 24 and 38 and 42. <laughs> they, kind <of laughs> go, they kind of look at you as so you are really weird. <laughs> and, you know, because that's exactly what happened. I, I started smoking just before I met Andrew and Andrew um, liked to smoke dope. And so we, that was part, but it was, that was part of my breakup of my marriage. Um, it was me going off the rails, you know, going back into drugs again, which I'd given up when I was 24. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd married, well, I married Nick when I was 25. So, um, and he was completely straight because uh, Beggar's Banquet, you know, were the sort of, um, they hated the the hippies because they were an indie label. Well, yes. uh, well, that was that was part of their ethos anyway. And he didn't like that. He didn't. 
he didn't smoke and so I gave up then and I didn't start again until my marriage ended and it, it was sort of like I mean, I think drugs and pain go together. Everybody knows that. People turn to turn to drugs when they're in pain. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so, unfortunately, some people stay there, partly because they don't heal themselves or partly because they just become addicted and can't find a reason not to do it anymore, mm-hmm. especially if it's, you know, socially acceptable and, and they like it and it's, you know, it doesn't impact on their life very much. But, but I, I couldn't smoke because I sing, and and smoking was impacting on my voice. And actually, drinking does. And I know that when I drink, um, uh, it it impacts on my voice. So I don't really like. Well, not only it impacts your health. So mm. I have to be very careful. But I've got Irish blood, you know. My dad was a drinker. My mother not. No, she 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 wasn't a drinker at all. But my dad was, and so I've got these two parents fighting inside me. Oh, oh, well, you have a drink? No, no, I won't. Yes, you will. No, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> God, it is tricky, isn't it? Really navigating. Yeah. Did you feel that you know? Because those moments where we we can have some ups and downs it's often tricky to take that kind of um, to move through it and not just keep, you know, sitting in it. And sometimes it becomes too much of a habit. So that kind of sense of, I don't know, taking responsibility or thinking, right, I need to change the narrative. Did you have to do quite a, that, a lot of processing throughout the decades? Because you've yes. had such a full life. And I have had you, a full life. Yes. And lots, <laughs> lots of things have happened to me. Yes. I mean, lots of things, you know. Uh, it's not always been a bowl of cherries, I can tell you now. It's been tough. But I think that, you know, um, I've landed in a good place. And I look back now thinking, well, the tough things were there to help deepen me as a person so that I can be more useful, you know, because I can empathise with people that are going through something similar um or that I, it can add a level of pathos to my work maybe that might not have been there otherwise yes well um, we, we all know you know david bowie's last album black star was kind of a bit too heavy in, well not too heavy but you know it, it sort of dealt with the major subject and you realize that even when you're sort of in the, whatever age you can still write probably one of the best albums you know in the last year you know, when you're in your late 60s. So it's quite, yes. I mean, I suppose experiences does help to fuel the creative process at the same time, if you can channel it in the right way. Yeah, yeah, Which can be quite tricky, which can be tricky. I mean, if you could have said something to your, say, your 16-year-old self starting out, if you could have just met them and Mm. had a few moments, or, you know, more than a few moments, but, you know, just a bit of time, what was, what would you have whispered in their ear or, or you know, tried to sort of guide them? Was there, was there anything that you... you I would have said, please look at your bank statements. That's what I would have (laughs) said. (laughs) Because I paid so much in blooming overdraft fees because I couldn't be bothered to look at my bank statements. I've, I've had really very poor uh, attention to money um and it it's got me into a few scrapes but really no i mean i would have probably said to myself you're in for a wild ride so buckle up girl 
you're yes. in for a wild ride. <laughs> um, but that's probably all I would have said. Yes. But, um, I should have been a bit more sensible with money. But I'm not unhappy. Um, no. I, I, you know, I, I love getting, I, I love every day. Every day is fantastic. And I, I've got, I've got three beautiful daughters. I mean, you know, I'm rich beyond my wildest dreams in, you know, with them really, they're my absolute blessing. And um, so, no, I mean, it's, it's been, it's been good, but it, it has been a wild ride. It has no been, doubt about it? it. Are you proud yeah. of that younger self, you know, cause you were so young when you started. I mean, do you look at them and just that, that person just want to give them a hug and say, just, you know, hang in there. Yeah, I do actually. I mean, it was, had I known what I was going to go through, I would certainly have given her a hug um, because there have been some difficult times. Um, and I'd already lived through some difficult times, but, you know, by the time I was 16. Uh, but, you know, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one by any means. So there are people out there that are going through far worse than I have and... Um, you know, my heart goes out to them. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And just looking forward, do you have, I mean, you've got this new album. Do you have sort of plans in the next 12 months of going into, into the studio again and have and live dates and anything like that? Well, I've just been invited to sing in Japan. How about that? That's that's a that's a that's definitely something to uh clear oh, no. the I know that only that only happened. When was it yesterday? Yesterday or the day before? You're going to have to find your passport now. Well, no, I've got my passport. But where is it? Because I haven't used it. Oh, have you used it lately? Oh, yeah, I went to Atlanta in March. And uh, and then I also went to Amsterdam in June to to my youngest daughter's wedding, which was fantastic. Yes. So Um, Japan. So did someone say, look, we love your work? Well, do you know what happened? I, I did this gig in London on Wednesday, last Wednesday, with um, at the Water Rats with um, De- Del Bromham from Stray and a songwriter called Gabriel Moreno. And there was a Japanese fan there. And, you know, he was, I'd taken some CDs to sell, um, one, of, one of which was Abracadabra. And he said, oh, my God, Abracadabra is so expensive in Japan. Oh, I must buy it. I want three copies. No, I think he bought two copies and then one over Dark Apples, I think. Um, and we took photos. He filmed me. Um, so there's some footage of me on my um, Facebook page because my Facebook page is open so people can post things on it. I haven't got round to making it, on, you know, that yes. people can't. Um, and, but, well, I'm awfully glad because otherwise I would never have seen that. So anyway, put it put it on my Facebook page. Well, I the, the very next day I got a message from um, a fan who has a, a a vinyl record label based in Tokyo and said, Claire Hamill, we want to promote your shows in Tokyo. We want you to come uh, and we'll pay your expenses and how much would you like to be paid? And so I'm in discussions. I'm going to Japan. I this is fantastic. It. I know, um, it's fantastic, isn't it? So, so does that mean that they're going to be releasing some of your earlier albums on a Japanese label? Well, I would think there might probably be some sort of tie-up. 
The early albums have been released on vinyl uh, on Renaissance records in America. So they, but I'm not sure about the territory. I think it might be the world, but I don't know. I'm going to have to check the contract. Yes. Um, but uh, but they, they're only the first four albums. So if if this um, Japanese co um, company want to release any anything in Japan, I'm up for it. Absolutely. You know, definitely. I have got fans in Japan, you see, um, because um, some years, well, I went to Japan um, in 1986 and did some shows there supporting Rick Wakeman. Um, and also I, all my early stuff was released in Japan. Um, and, and, um, and so, and, and then somebody reissued, uh, a, a label got in touch with me. We want to reissue um, some of your early stuff in Japan. And uh, it was a, a, under a legend series. And so I was called Legend 33 which is really funny because, shall I tell you, yes. I, I was born at 33 Bell Street. That was, that was the house I was, I was born in my grandma's back bedroom in 1954 on a hot August night. And I, in Japan, I'm legend 33, Claire Hamill. So Fantastic. I thought that was really, a really weird, you know, little bit Moment. of synchronicity. It was actually, isn't yeah. it? Because you do get sort of a lot of support acts, don't you? You just mentioned Rick Wakeman early in the year. You you supported Focus, one of the great albums. Oh, called. my God, they're fantastic. Yes. They were amazing. I absolutely loved them. They were, I, I did actually, um, when I was uh, uh, in Fragile, we supported them at the Summer's End Festival over in Lydney, I think it is. And uh, and I didn't really see the set because I had some people there I was talking to downstairs, down, you know, in the backstage after after we'd been on. But I saw this set and they were amazing. I yes, I know. It's I always remember Rainbow, um, Focus at the Rainbow album my brother had, which was when you're about 11 and you sort of put that on when he, when he tells you, don't go into my record, uh, my, my room and play my records, and obviously you do. But I was a bit like, wow, yodeling, that's a new one. So anyway, that was that was exciting. Do you, do you find that you're, you're still sort of attracting new a new audience, younger people who are coming along kind of excited to? Because when you, you know, we always like to discover someone new, don't we? I just wonder if you're, you're starting to find young fans who... Well, of... I think if I gigged more, I certainly would. Because at the gig the other night, there were two young women there and they both went, oh, my God, you're amazing. No, well, actually, no, there was there were three. There were three young women there. Yes. But one, one was a bit older. I think she was about 40, actually. But the other but the other two were about 30. And they, they both went, oh, you're fantastic. Oh, wow. You know, and so, yeah. It, it, it's true I am making new fans and gigging is a way of doing that but I, I just don't have an agent I don't hustle because who can hustle oh my god it's so awful to hustle and then nothing happened so I I just have to wait for the good lord to put things my way and then I say yes I'll do yes that. well that's good and I can see Spotify you still get a good monthly listening you know figures so obviously people are out there still sort of playing discovering can you tell you can tell it does what? on Spotify it does say um you know monthly listener monthly listeners um Claire Hamill so there you go do you yeah. have Spotify no 
Well, I mean, uh, of course, I know my stuff's available on Spotify. I think I have, there's a way of using Spotify to um, increase your fan base by um, the algorithms thing. Um, I should actually tell all my fans to just keep listening on Spotify and and click on other people and then, you yes. know, for, in, for instance, um, I got that thing from uh, Elizabeth Fraser that popped up on youtube music because i've gone to right. youtube music so um so maybe somebody had linked me with elizabeth fraser and that's why they played her just after because it also tells you where where you know roughly you know where most of the people are there's london oh. melbourne walsall sydney and uh, los angeles so, really so there you go sort of people are so be in Australia, you should try and get into Australia and Poland. Oh, <laughs> wow. Well, I did have a hit in Poland, you see. Right. So uh, the moon is a powerful lover was at number 10 in the charts in Poland. Right. So. Mm. That cliffhanger. We'll leave it there. That was me in conversation with the singer performer Claire Hamill talking about her life in music. Um, and do check out her website as well. There's lots of information there. This has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these interviews have been archived. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show. That's it for the week. Um, for the moment anyway this is going to be the track that i promised at the beginning that she talked about in the interview when are walls one anyway have a great week stay safe
Thank you.